0: we're talking about in in the series that that I'm doing here uh, is we've been talking about love and the knowledge of good and evil and really taking a serious look at this forbidden tree in the middle of the garden, that prohibition around which everything else rotates. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I suspect that 99 out of 100 of us in this auditorium have never heard a teaching on why that tree was called the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not what we'd expect. We would have thought the tree of debauchery or the tree of ungodliness, the tree of, of this sin or that sin, but it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And why is that a bad thing? And what we've been showing is that it's eating from that tree that blocks the flow of love to us, abiding in us, and flowing through us. This is a, a major paradigm shift for some of us. It has been for me. It's one I've been in process with for several years, but it's really been crystallized in the last six months. And it's just uh, so releasing. said, you know what, this is my whole religion. I've been born and raised in the church, and I'm getting to realize that directly or indirectly, everything was about training me to be a judger training me how to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I ate of the good fruit, and other people ate of the bad fruit. And I, I was just conditioned to feel special. I got my life from believing that I was different from those guys. I was better than those guys. And, and that really was a source of life. But what's happening to this person, he said, is that, that uh, I, I'm, I'm getting freed from that, and I'm really beginning to know what it is to get life from Jesus Christ alone without the need to compare and to evaluate and run a commentary. And he says, and the amazing thing is that I feel like for the first time in my life, I'm really developing a love for people in general. I've had particular loves for for friends, but I've only been a judge. And now I'm being freed to love. And that, folks, is what it's all about. Learning what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is and and, uh, learning how to get free of it in order to do the one thing that God calls us to do, the purpose for all creation which is to receive and to embody and dispense God's outrageous love that is the center of the center. So we've been taking a, a real long, hard look at Genesis 3. And right now I'm not sure we'll ever get out of Genesis 3. I've just turned on to Genesis 3. It is so profound. The Word of God is like that. If you take the time to chew it and investigate it and, and just let it you know, kind of grow in your mind, man, does it reveal truth. It just, Genesis 3 tells the story of our life. It really does. So we're chewing on this, getting into it, nitty gritty. Genesis 3, let's read verses 8 through 13 here this morning. Well and by the way, because this is a, a kind of a, a paradigm shift, it's not a message that we're used to hearing. You can't really get it down into nice little sound bites. Uh, it, it, it's a little bit difficult. It requires our thinking caps on. I'm turning this entire church into a classroom where we're becoming disciples of love. That's what this whole thing is about. Um, because of it, it's a little bit difficult, we're providing support for this. And we may do this you know, from here on, I don't know. But we're, there's study guides that we're posting every Sunday night or at least every Monday on the sermon. Things, questions for you to ask yourself. And we encourage you to download those study guides and to look up the verses. Discuss them in your small group. They make great small group discussion uh, points. And, and really be chewing on this stuff. Undoubtedly, you have some questions. You may at least have some questions about some of the stuff that we're talking about. What about this? What about that verse or whatever? And we encourage you uh, to ask questions about this and be in dialogue. I'll try to cover some of these questions in my sermons, but some of it, you know, you, you want to answer, get answered right now. You can ask questions on the Woodland Hills Church website and our discipleship team will respond. Uh, or if you want, there's, a, there's another avenue. I have a website. It's just gregboyd.org. And uh, I have discussion rooms on this website, and you can go on there and raise whatever question you have. Now, you've got to know that there's about almost 300 people that are interacting on there from different parts of the world, so I don't know what kind of answers you're going to get. So you're going to have to you know, be able to, to discern truth from there. But uh, I, I get on there once in a while and, and, uh, and talk, and it's, just, it's a good way to process. So uh, that's another thing that's, that's open for you. Genesis chapter 3. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord. They used to enjoy this time. This was their time of intimacy where they'd walk with God uh, in the best part of the day. Now, because they'd eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they're hiding from him. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And the Lord said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman! (laughs) Some people say that there's a woman to blame, but I know. And see, it all goes back to this. And guys have been using this lame excuse since day one. The woman. And women go, Amen. The, the woman that... Now look at this. The woman, okay, her fault, that you gave me. It's your fault. God, what were you thinking? <laughs> the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and then under his breath, and I ate. Then the, then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? Now, she uses the second oldest excuse in the book. The devil made me do it. <laughs> no, the devil made me do it. You see, what God asks these questions. And I don't think any of us think that he didn't know where they were hiding and he didn't know who gave who what and he didn't know that they'd already eaten of the tree. But what God's doing here is He's, he's uh, the, the, the relationship between him and his creation has been ruptured. And he's trying now, right from the get-go, keep the lines of communication open. And what he's trying to elicit here is a confession. But a confession is not what he gets. Rather, what you find with Adam and Eve here is that they're doing the old performance hiding game that we've talked about. They're still eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil even as they're responding to God. Um, they're hiding from Him. They, they, they don't come out and speak honestly. Honestly. They hide behind a a little bit of truth that they're given, but they hide the greater part of the truth. They still don't trust that God is on their side. They're afraid of God. They're hiding from God. They don't trust that His mercy will be bigger than their sin. So what they're doing is they try to justify themselves. And uh, and in the process of justifying themselves, they, they accuse one another. To, to give a quick review here, what we've seen in this whole process of, of the fall is that everything starts with a judgment. The accuser comes and brings a judgment against God and a judgment against us. The judgment against God is that He's not trustworthy. The judgment about us is that we're idiots if we trust Him. We can do better than that. That blocks the flow of love, the, the flow of God's love to us and flowing through us. Because you can't, you can't get love from someone you don't trust. It blocks the flow of love. So Eve experiences an emptiness. The God-shaped vacuum in her uh, core of her being that god wants to fill is now in fact a vacuum but it's it, what we need we're created to have that vacuum filled and if we're not getting it from god we try to get it from other sources so we perform we try to uh, fill the hole in our soul by what we say by how we look by what we do by what we can acquire by being successful or by being religious or whatnot and we hide everything that's not consistent with that performance we perform to get worth and we hide to protect worth. And now what we're seeing in Adam and Eve is this. That performance hiding game now gets displayed as justifying themselves and then judging others. And the two always go hand in hand. And now you see the full loop of, uh, of the cycle of judgment we've been brought into. It starts with a judgment about God. It proceeds to a judgment about ourselves and it ends up judging others. And all of it is the antithesis of love. I want us to see that Adam and Eve, in the process of doing this, are eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They are becoming lawyers rather than lovers. And I don't mean to slam lawyers here, all right? Now, I'm going to be talking about lawyers. But lawyers, we love you and there's a place for you in society. But we're, we're not to live our life and to relate to God and to each other like we are lawyers, all right? They become their own defense attorneys. What they do... See, they're learning how to be crafty like the serpent in using their knowledge of good and evil. They put forth a truth, but it's not the full truth. Technically, they all tell the truth. Eve did give the fruit to Adam. The serpent did, uh, you know, uh, lie to Eve. That's technically true, but that's not the main truth. The main truth is that they chose to rebel against God. But they, 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 they minimize their sin by maximizing another sin and they're doing it by being their own defense attorney. And all the while, what God is trying to get from them is their heart. Will you own up to what you've done and let's start repairing this relationship. What Adam and Eve are doing here is they're trusting their own ability to negotiate their knowledge of good and evil rather than God's character. And that... As I read, the passage is the essence of, uh, of all sin. They live as lawyers now, trying to justify themselves and thereby uh, blaming others, accusing others, judging others, rather than living simply as human beings who get love, abide in love, and give love. I want us to see, it's so important that we see, the radical dichotomy, the antithesis, between living in this knowledge of good and evil, and therefore living as lawyers, and living in love. They're, they're, they're opposites. But it's easy for us to miss because we're so used to living in the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, we've Christianized the thing. Uh, so I, I want us to really get clear on this. Let me use an analogy, and it might help. Let's, let's consider a hypothetical man. Let's call him George. And George is, he teaches ethics at a university. He knows ethics. But uh, what George... The thing about George is this, for a variety of reasons, the way he was raised or damage that was done, who knows. He's never really really had love in his heart. He doesn't know how to love. And therefore, he never trusts that anybody's going to love him for free. Now, George, what he does do is he knows ethics. And for a variety of reasons, let's say George, his strategy for getting life is looking like a good husband. He wants to be a good husband in the only way he knows how. He, he feels good about himself when he's a good husband, so he wants to convince himself that he's a good husband, wants to convince uh, his wife let's call her Sue, that he's a good husband, and wants to convince God that he's a good husband and wants to convince all of his neighbors that he's a good husband. so what does he do? He goes out and buys a bunch of ethics books on how to be a good husband. He studies good husband behavior he studies it uh, like a, like a, a sociologist he observes Couples, And he sees what works and what doesn't work. And he, and he memorizes, okay, here's what you say, and here's what you do when it works, and here's, what you, here's the evil you've got to avoid if it's not going to work. And, and he, and he internalizes that. He, le- he learns all the rules. He learns how to uh, uh, get the right facial expression in the right circumstance, how to say the right thing, how to do the right thing. He memorizes all those rules. He's just got every ought and every supposed to that a good husband could ever have. He lives in the question, what's the ethical thing to do? What's the ethical? What's the right? What's the proper thing to do? What, how do good husbands act? He doesn't live in the question, how can I just love my wife? He lives in the question, what's the right behavior, right words, right expressions I'm supposed to have? And he's got it down. I mean, when his wife's a little bit sad, he remembers the rule. Okay, I, I put my arm around her and I have to look, have a kind of a concerned look on my face. And I say, oh honey, you know, I feel your pain. And, and, and he knows just what to do and he does it. You know, and, and, and when, when, when his wife's excited about something, he remembers the rule. Oh, participate in her excitement and act like you're excited. You know, and, and when his wife puts on a little bit of weight, he remembers the rule. You know, compliment the dress, you know, or whatever. He, he's got everything down. You know, he knows just what to do, okay? And technically, he's, he's a great husband. He lives in the question. What's the ethical thing to do? What's the right, what's the proper thing to do? How, how often does an ethical husband make love to his wife? If you've got to ask that question, something's seriously wrong. You see, uh, you know, is it proper to... You, know, you get the point. And see, here's the sad thing. See, if he's getting life from how he looks as a husband, then whenever he fails at that, he feels indicted, so he's got to make excuses. He's got to give blames. And because he's always studying behavior, he notices when other husbands aren't being good husbands. And he judges them and he feels good about himself when when their behavior doesn't match up to his standards. So he's a judger and he's excuser and he's a blamer. And technically, he's going to look like a good husband. And outsiders may, in fact, be convinced, but Sue will know that something's wrong here. You see, um, there is something missing in George. There's a, a quality of life that just isn't there. There's a quality of, 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 of passion that's not there. Oh, he, you know, and if she confronted him, George, something's missing. He would say, well, what should I do? And she'd say, no, that's the very problem. You're always wondering what to do. You know, there's something lacking here. There's a certain, if you look carefully, if you're close enough like Sue is, there's an inflexibility, there's a rigidity to George. Uh, there's a lack of spontaneity. He's too predictable. There's, there's not any kind of playfulness. There's not any kind of abandon. There's not any kind of a joy that is there. Oh, he's got the right words and all of that, but but something is really missing. And the sad thing is this. George doesn't realize it. Because George thinks that if you just do the right things and say the right things, have the right expressions, have the right behavior, well, that's what it means to have a relationship with a wife. That's the only relationship he knows. But Sue, Sue would not be satisfied. Technically, he's doing great, but in fact, in fact the relationship looks good, but, the, but in fact, there really is no relationship. The, all the behavior is there, but George himself is not there. George is always one step removed. The real George is always one step removed out of the relationship. Are you following this? In fact, really, there is no relationship. What George is relating to is a set of principles, a set of rules. He's relating to his knowledge of good and evil as it pertains to husbands. He's not really even relating to to Sue. He's like inside of a barricade, a fortress of his knowledge. And he's always living in that question. But in fact, he's not really relating to Sue as he is and as she is. Let me draw you a picture because I'm such a good artist. Where's my picture? Oh, here it is. Here it goes. Look at this. A, a good relationship looks like this. Here's, here, here's a loving relationship. Look at that. See the intersection? Here's George and here's Sue. And the core of George intersects with the core of Sue and the core of Sue intersects with the core of George. This is what's called intimacy. Into me see. The real you is there. Alright? That's a relationship. You're relating. Your, your souls are penetrating. But that's not what's happening with George. George is over here and Sue is over here. Uh, you know, George is here and Sue is here. And what's blocking the behavior is a wall of oughts and shoulds and do's and behavior. George is living in the wrong question, you see. This is his knowledge of good and evil. The outside is his performance. The inside is his hiding. And all of this is how he's negotiating the good and evil. And and the thing is this. Sue is almost incidental to the equation. The relationship isn't a relationship because it's not even about Sue. George. It looks like it's about Sue because George says Sue Sue toward words, if you will. He acts toward Sue. But really it's about George. George is getting light. He's performing. This is about George making sure, feeling good about himself because he's cranking out the right behavior and doing the right words and all this stuff. It's all about George. So no wonder Sue is going to feel way on the outside of things. The knowledge of good and evil blocks a genuine love relationship from really happening. And Sue would not be... uh, She'd be thankful for the nice behavior, but she would not be a fulfilled wife. Because what Sue wants, what every wife wants, husbands, listen up, but also what every husband wants, wives, listen up, and what God wants, Christians, listen up, and non-Christians, listen up. What Sue wants is George. George. Not a perfect George, not a performing George, not a good image George. What she wants is George. What she wants is his heart. What she wants is intimacy with him. Not a performing image giving George. She doesn't want a perfect robotic husband. She wants a real husband. And if we could listen into their conversation uh, some evening, what you'd hear maybe is something like this. George, will you just get out of your head and get into your heart and give it to me? We put aside all your books and all your knowledge and all your posters and all your rules and all your right behavior. Quit being so stiff and inflexible. And we just be you to me. And I don't care what I find. I don't care how imperfect it is. I don't care how, how bad and wounded it is. I just want you and I want you to want me and I want our lives to intersect. We just get rid of, of, of this wall of oughts and shoulds. The goal here, George, is not to have a good looking marriage. The goal is to have a marriage. The goal isn't ethically right, proper behavior. The goal is love. And maybe it won't look as good and sound as good and be as impressive as you're performing stuff, but it would be real. And what we want, George, is reality. What I want us to see is this. As long as George didn't trust that his wife would love him as he is, he will continue to perform, continue to study, continue to get all her exact behavior. And as long as George is living in the question, well, what am I supposed to do? You know, what's the what's the should? He'll never experience genuine love. He, he, he's too busy uh, investing in his doing to ever get love in his simple being. He'll never let his wife love him in his imperfection because he's too busy covering it with perfect behavior. The knowledge of good and evil, living from the knowledge of good and evil, blocks him from ever experiencing the real. You follow me on this? Another thing I want us to see is this, that uh, uh, if George ever did learn what real love is, if, he, if somehow he could just trust his, his wife's love for him and, and be vulnerable and set aside the oughts and the should and start living out of the question, how do I love my wife more perfectly and how do I get love for my wife and um, uh, experience love for my wife more completely, if he lived in that question and if he could put aside the ought and the should in the textbook questions, he'd still do most of the stuff he's doing. He's doing good stuff. There's nothing wrong with, with, it, with what He's doing. But He'd be doing it for an entirely different reason. You see, this is what Jesus means when He says, if, if you love, you fulfill all the law. But you don't do it to fulfill the law. You do it because you're loving. You following this? this is the anti- There's a, a universe of difference, even though it looks the same on the outside. There's a universe of difference between living in the knowledge of good and evil and living out of a center of love. I would define religion... This is why we always say Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. In fact, I I think the main obstacle to Christianity is religion. Religion, I would define as a George like relationship with God, a George like relationship with God. You live in, in the, your knowledge of good and evil. You live in the question, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to say? What's the exact right thing I'm supposed to believe? What's the exact right ritual I'm supposed to get in? What's the exact right interpretation of the Bible? in this passage and that passage. And your life hangs on it, you know? Because you think that if you just say it right, believe it right, do it right, express it right, well, that's what it means to have a relationship with God. Living in the knowledge of good and evil. And technically it looks good. Technically, you know, you're getting it all right, boy. It's just, but there's a certain life quality that's missing in religious people. There's a certain freedom that's missing in religious people. There's a certain passion that's missing in religion, religious people. There's a certain joy that's missing in religious people. There's, a, a, there's an inflexibility and an austerity that you often find in people who are getting life by, by, by their religion rather than just by a relationship with God. Uh, they think that the, that, that the religion is the relationship, but in fact, it's not. And because they're getting life from this body of knowledge and the oughts and the shoulds and the do's, because of that, if, anyone, if they ever screw up like George, they feel indicted, so they've got to blame. They've got to excuse. They've got to deflect things. They have to minimize their own sin and maximize other sins. That's part of their strategy for, for getting life. And because they're getting life from their system of rightness, right beliefs, right, right interpretations, and all of that, if someone disagrees with them, well, then their life is attacked, so they have to rage, they've got to get big, they've got to call them heretics, they've got to squash them. That's why there's so many divisions in the body of Christ. People are getting life from their rightness of the religion rather than the reality of the relationship. I like that slogan. People are getting life... It's not only really a slogan, but it came out just right. People are getting life from the religion rather than the reality of the relationship. Man, that one, that one lands. Thank you, Jesus. And because they're getting life from it, I want us to see this. It looks like, it looks like they're related to God. And everything they say is, oh, it's all about God. Oh, oh, glory to God. All the credit to God. Oh, glory to Jesus. But in fact, they don't have a relationship with God. They're, they're, this is The, 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 the uh, uh, ultimate of this is the Pharisees. Their souls aren't penetrating. There's no intimacy there. There's no reality there. Like George, they've got a wall of their knowledge of good and evil, a wall of their correctness, a wall of their right action and all of that that's keeping them from having a genuine, soul-bearing, honest relationship with God. They're doing what Adam and Eve did. They're hiding behind a te- something that's technically true, but the real truth of who they are is out of the equation. They're one step removed from a real relationship with God. They're locked in their body of uh, knowledge of good and evil. And it's all about them. They say it's about God. They say it's about Jesus. But really, and I'm not judging them. I'm feeling sorry for them. And I'm feeling sorry for us because we all participate in this to some extent. It's about us. We're meeting our own needs. We're trying to feel okay. We're trying to, to, to you know, just do the right things and believe the right things. And, and we're trying to give ourselves life. But it will never work because the only one who can give you life is, is the one who is life. And you get that by having a relationship with Him. All of this, I want us to see this, all of it is based on not trusting God. Not trusting that the real God is who He says He is in the person of Jesus Christ. If you, if you don't trust your wife, you, you perform, you hide, and, and you, you get an image. And if you don't trust God, you perform, you hide, and you, and you, and you get an image. You, you justify yourself. You give yourself life. And one of the ways you do that is by minimizing your sin and maximizing other people's sins. And that's why in religion you'll always find a society of judges. But what God wants us to see here this morning, and it's so crucial is it the truth about God as revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the heart of God. That's the center of God. That's the definitive revelation of God. And what you find in the cross of Jesus Christ is this. God wants you because God is in love with you. Jesus died for you. Not a perfect you, not a performing you, not a technically correct you, not an obsessive you, not an image you, but the real you, the honest you. And what God wants to begin to restore a relationship is honesty. There's no relationship without trust and honesty. And that's what God's calling from us. He wants the real us. Uh, not a, 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 an us that is defending ourselves like a lawyer, but an us that is laid bare before Him. He wants a relationship that's not mediated by a body of knowledge and correctness where we're feeding ourselves from. He wants a relationship that's profound, that's direct, that's soul on soul, soul in soul, intimacy, a genuineness, reality, honesty. Because that's the, that alone is the kind of love relationship that mirrors who He is. That's the relationship He wants with us and that's the one relationship that begins to free us and change us and transform us. The Lord, like Sue talking to George, the Lord is saying to us this, get out of your head and get into your heart and give me your heart. Quit evaluating yourself and others. Quit living in that evaluation. How am I doing? How are they doing? I don't know. Little, you know, Get out of that, that's all that that's all the curse of the forbidden tree. And get into a real relationship that's honest before God and trust that God is sufficient to acquit and to make you holy and to make you pure and to make you lovable before Him. Get out of your performing, get out of your self justification and judgment of others. Get out of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Get out of making excuses, get out of blaming others, get out of passing the buck, get out of being someone else's victim. Own up to who you are. God deal with the blaming stuff. You just deal with who you are. And who you are, the Lord is saying, is this. You are guilty. Don't try to deflect it. Don't try to minimize it. Go ahead and maximize it because you've got to know this. As you are guilty, I love you anyways. I died for you anyways. I cherish you anyways. And I can heal you anyways. Amen. <laughs> Holy Spirit, have your way. In fact, the Lord would be saying this. You're... You are, Greg Boyd, far more guilty than you'd ever think to yourself. Even if you were honest with yourself, you wouldn't see the full depth of the guilt. But you've got to know that I love you anyways. Don't try to hide that. Do you think, the Lord is saying, do you think I don't see that? I know you better than you know yourself. I see you inside and out. But I'm here to tell you, and the cross is the testimony, that I love you anyways. I know about your abortion, and I love you anyways. Don't hide it from me. Give it to me. I know about your uh, adultery. I know about your habits. I know how you medicate your pain by watching too much TV, or eating too much food, or your sexual addictions, but you got to know this. I love you anyways. Will you trust me enough to be honest with me? Ruthlessly honest with me. Give me your heart. Don't, don't, don't be justifying it, minimizing it, excusing it. Admit it! But admit it to me and let me love you out of it, praise God. I know about every sin you've ever committed. I've experienced every sin that you've committed. That's what Calvary is all about. I saw you when you first told your first lie at the age of two about that stupid cookie jar. I was there and I've been seeing you ever since, but you got to know this. I love you anyways. I died for you just as you are. Will you, will you bear your heart to me? I know about your gossip. I know about your self-righteousness. I know about your religiosity. I know about your judgmentalism. I know about it all. There isn't one thing you've ever done that I don't know about. Every thought you've ever thought, every feeling you've ever had, every deed you've ever done. And I love you anyways. Trust me in this, and my mercy is bigger than your sin. Will you be honest with me? Will you, will, you, will, you, will you unveil yourself to me as I've unveiled myself to you? And if you're doubting my character, will you let the, the nail scars in my wrists and the stake scars in my ankles be proof to you that I'm not going away? I don't even wince when I look at your sin. You maybe do. Maybe you think others will, but I don't. No, I, 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 I love you anyways. And if you're doubting my character, will you look at my side, uh, the, the, the blood gushing from my side and the crown of thorns on my head and let that be proof to you? Will you let my, my bone exposed back where they whip with me be proof that I love you that much? Will you let the cry in my voice as I'm being crucified and I'm experiencing the judgment for your sin, I'm experiencing the horror of your sin, and I'm experiencing the, the wrath of God and separation from God? Will you let that be proof that I love you? that I'm not going away, I'm safe, you can be honest with me just as you are, don't hide it, don't excuse it, don't justify it, don't minimize it, just be real with it, and now I can love you in the middle of it, and now you can begin to discover the kind of love that I am, and that's the one thing that can begin to change you from the inside out. Don't justify yourself. You don't need to be your own defense lawyer. We've got a good defense lawyer. Amen? His name is Jesus Christ. Amen. The Bible... The Bible says this. The Bible says this. It's so silly to plead our own case when we see who, who God really is, if we just know the truth and who Jesus is. The Bible says in First John that when we sin, we have one who makes defense for us. We have a defense lawyer. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have a defense lawyer, and He's good. Oh, He's really good. You know, uh, my wife and I like to watch this movie, uh, this series, The Practice. On, on Sunday nights, 9 o'clock, and then now you start watching reruns on other nights. Uh, it's, it's sort of our ritual. We get popcorn and we cozy up, and oh, I just love to practice, you know. And, well, you know but you got some really good defense lawyers. And they can get any criminal off the hook. It's going to be a little sad that we find this entertaining, but that's the way it is. And there's a role for it, and they raise a lot of good ethical questions. There's redeeming value here, a lot of good ethical questions and moral dilemmas, and, and all of that. It's really a good show, and there's some really, really good lawyers here. But there's not one. Not even, was it Mike O'Donnell or Tim Donnelly? Or what's that guy's name? I forget. Whatever that guy's name is. Even he is not a one who can hold a candle to Jesus Christ. This defense lawyer, oh, can you trust him? He has yet to lose a case. Every single case he's ever heard has come back, the jury's come back and has said, we find the defendant totally, totally innocent. Praise God. In fact, it's better than that. They come back with a verdict. We find that the defendant has already served time. The, the punishment for it is already complete, praise God. Hasn't lost a case. How does he do it? He doesn't do it by being so smart and he outsmarts you know, the, the justice system. No, he does it by being outrageously loving. In fact, he's so loving, he really rigs the court. you know. And you say, well, that's not just. Well, it's certainly just because God did it and therefore it's just. All right. If God be for us, who can be against us? You're going to accuse God? No, you're not. He rigs the court. Here's how he rigs the court. First of all, he has a love relationship with the defendant. and Not really kosher, but he has a love relationship with the defendant. I feel good about going into a courtroom when I know that the, 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 my defense lawyer is my wife. Oh, that, that's good. But not only really is the defense lawyer your lover, but he's also your judge, you find out. And he's also the jury. You can't lose on this one. You'd be an idiot to walk in there saying, no, I want to plead my own case. What are you nuts? The whole thing is set up on your behalf. It's all there to make sure that you get acquitted, praise God. In fact, it's even a little better than that. Because He's not only your lover, He's not only your defense attorney, not only your judge, and not only the jury, but He's also you, the defendant. Oh yes, He's you, the accused defendant. He becomes you, the punished defendant. He becomes you, the criminal. He becomes you that serves time. And that, folks, is how He gets every single case acquitted, praise God, off the hook. Holy, blameless, Fatherless, redeemed, compatible with God, righteousness of Jesus Christ. You're going to trust your own ability. Hallelujah. Amen. And see, if you interpret that just as a legal thing, you're missing the point. It's a love thing. He's saying, I love you this much. Don't try to be something you're not. I'm safe. My mercy is bigger than your sin. And that will, if you'll let me, if you'll be ruthlessly honest and not do what Adam and Eve did, not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but just be real here. Oh, you let me on the inside and now my love. Now you can, like a George, begin to experience what it is to be loved for free. Not because of your doing, but in spite of your doing, and that's why now you begin to experience that it's about your being. It's got nothing to do with your doing. You following that? And it's when we get that love that we begin to be transformed from the inside out. And now you begin to do, you begin to, you begin to magnify God, you begin to glorify God in your life. But you don't do it because of an image or out of fear or, or to get something. It's because you experience the outrageous, incomprehensible, beautiful, amazing love of God towards you. Infinite worth ascribing love of God towards you in the midst of all the reasons you'd ever have for pushing Him away. The Lord gave me this little phrase, and I just want to give it to you. It's simply this, Jesus died on the cursed tree to free us from the curse of the forbidden tree. And the whole Bible story is wrapped up in that. He died on a cursed tree. He died a curse on a cursed tree to free us from the curse of the forbidden tree. The Lord is saying to us, get out of your heads, get into your heart and give me your heart. Live in love, not judgment. Trust His character. Be open, unconditionally honest, open to Him. And we're going to move into a time of taking communion here. This morning. And what this is about is just raw honesty. The cross, which is what we think about when we take the bread, it represents His body. When we take the cup, it represents His blood. Here we're seeing God naked, if you will. God totally exposed. God totally honest. This is the heart of the heart of the heart of God. He is this kind of God towards you. That's who He really is. And now what He wants is for you to reciprocate and expose the heart of the heart of the heart of you. Now His heart is beautiful and your heart is not but He wants you to do it anyways. So you begin to experience the love that He is and then be transformed by the love that He is. As we take this communion, I want us to look at the honest God and I want us to have one thought in mind and that is to be absolutely honest with Him. Open with Him. Open the door to the darkest, junkiest, smelliest, mold-filled, grimy, horror-filled closet in the basement of the house that you are. And let Him in. And let Him love you in the midst of that. And that's the only thing that will begin to grow you out of that. Sometimes people don't do that. We still hide because we've got stuff in our life we don't want to get rid of. We like it. And so we, we, we put that on the back burner we dance around it and we tell technically true things, but the profound truth we don't tell. The Lord is saying, you know what, even for, bring that to me, a snapshot of who you are. You don't, you don't want to get rid of that yet? Bring that to me. And say, I don't want to get rid of this yet. But you see, as, as you just... Delight yourself in the Lord, the Bible says. He gives you the desires of your heart. Which is to say this, not the desires that you now have. He gives you the desires of your heart. He gives you the desires you should have. And as we come to Him honestly, He begins to change what we desire. He begins to change our motivation. It's the love of God, the Bible said, that it says, that leads to repentance. As you let Him love you as you are, you grow into something that you're not. And that's what all transformation is all about. We, as we take this communion, we invite everybody who's a believer to, to fellowship with us and, and to take this with us. We don't care if you're Baptist or Episcopalian or, or, or whatever, Catholic, Lutheran, disciple of Christ, Pentecostal, wonderful. Do you, do you know Jesus? Celebrate this with us. If you're here and you're not a believer, you've never surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ, I want you to join us too. And I, I want to extend that invitation by asking you to accept Christ right now as your Lord and Savior. It's the easiest thing in the world and it's the most profound thing in the world. So while everyone prays, would, would you, if you're here this morning and, and you've never received, you've never surrendered to Jesus Christ and you want to do that right now, you need that love, would you just raise your hand very quickly? Anybody here at all want to surrender their life to Jesus Christ? This is the love that you were made for. This is the relationship that you were made for very quickly here. Just raise your hand and I'll pray for you right from where we are. Anybody here at all? Now I'm going to assume, I don't see any hands. Uh, if, if, If one was raised and I didn't see it, God knows it and you can pray this on your own. But I'm going to pray that God would now use this time to make our relationship with Him pure, crystal honesty. Father, use this communion time, Lord God, to shower, shower, bathe, bask us in the outrageous love that you are. And help us, Lord God, to open up every dark, painful, wounding, sinful thing in our life and invite you into it just as we are. We give you a snapshot of of ourselves right here at this moment and have your way in making us your people. In Jesus' name we pray.